2: plan savings with three lines of t-mobile essentials versus comparable available plans plan features and taxes and fees may vary
3: you are entering the news vault from kcbs radio flames and the smoke i have a tape recorder in my hand well, nobody
2: would think of doing that
3: the newsmen were blocking the door it worked for a
2: couple
4: of seconds bringing the sounds of history Back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And this time around, we risk all sorts of opprobrium by delving into the Amelia Earhart disappearance mystery and the role KCBS had in covering that story many, many years ago. It, of course, remains one of the enduring mysteries of the 20th century. What happened to Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, who set out from Oakland in May of 1937? to fly around the world and then never came back, vanishing over the South Pacific. Sometime in July 1937, the mystery lingered and lingered and lingered and lingers to this day, as a matter of fact. As you may know, the legendary ocean explorer, Dr. Robert Ballard, is now involved in work with the National Geographic Society. They're focusing on an island called Mororo, which is a tiny island in the nation of Kiribati. Back in 1960, the theory being held by a KCBS newsman by the name of Fred Gurner was that Amelia Earhart had landed or crashed in Saipan, an entirely different island, about 3,000 miles away, and that had been held captive by the Japanese who controlled the island at that time. And it was in July of 1960 that KCBS broadcast a special report on Earhart. Uh, This uh, involved a sponsorship by Shell Oil, which you're going to hear in a moment or two is that entire broadcast introduced by KCBS News Director Don Mosley and featuring the work of Fred Gurner. Gurner had become convinced that Earhart and Noonan had survived the crash but then died in Japanese custody on Saipan. Now, on that day in 1960, when the KCBS broadcast aired, Gurner called in other Bay Area reporters. They showed off some airplane parts he'd brought back from the harbor on Saipan. There's a legendary photo of Gurner sitting in one of the studios at the Old Palace Hotel, where KCBS was located at that time in San Francisco, telling the assembled reporters what he'd found and speculating that these were proof. That there had been a an Earhart crash there at Saipan. A year later, he made another trip, and brought back human remains he believed might have been those of Earhart and Noonan. There would be later analysis by an anthropologist at Cal that would dash cold water on that belief. Fred Gerner never really gave up on his belief that he had the thread of the Earhart story. He made a third trip to Saipan on his own time and money. He published a lengthy account of all of this in Argosy Magazine in 1964. Eventually. Writing a best selling book called The Search for Amelia Earhart, which was published in 1966. And of course, to this day, the question of what happened to her is a contentious one. Some see a conspiracy. And I stumbled into this when I began to do the research for this episode of the News Vault podcast. I had a fragmentary portion of the broadcast you will shortly hear in its entirety, and I began to try to track down the provenance of it. Where did it come from? When had it aired? And in that process, I stumbled into a man named Mike Campbell. He's out of Jacksonville, Florida. He's written a book called Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last. And in that book, he says, the blurb on Amazon reads, for example, Nearly everything the American public has seen, read, and heard in the media for nearly 80 years about the so-called Amelia Earhart mystery is intentionally false or inadvertently misleading. The book, he says, goes on to say that it dismantles and debunks the popular theories that Earhart's Electra crashed and sank off Howland Island in July 1937 or landed at Gardner Island, which is now Nikumaroro, where the suddenly helpless flyers died of starvation on an island teeming with food sources. He believes, of course, that Fred Gerner got it right, that she died on Saipan, and that this was intentionally covered up by the U.S. government. When I reached out to Mike Campbell at his home in Jacksonville, Florida, I got a rather scathing response by email. Why would KCBS be interested in Gerner's work at this time? Several readers have told me they've contacted KCBS over the years to tell them about my work in exposing the truth, about the establishment's continuing refusal to acknowledge not only Gerner's work, but that of the others who have worked so hard to establish the truth, only to be ignored and vilified by nearly everyone in the mainstream. KCBS has been a part of that establishment for decades. So, without further adornment, we'll bring you what Fred Gerner brought KCBS listeners in July of 1960. The Amelia Earhart mystery, to some, no longer a mystery, to others, very much a mystery. Here's how that broadcast sounded in 1960.
2: Now the Shell Oil Company is proud to bring to the radio audience the dramatic and final chapter of a mystery that has disturbed and intrigued the American people nearly a quarter of a century.
1: The last flight of Amelia Earhart was exactly 23 years ago today. The first clue to her fate will be told tonight. Good evening, this is Don Mosley of KCBS News in San Francisco. Tonight, a fascinating story, a clue to the fate of Amelia Earhart, the famed woman aviator who disappeared in the Pacific on July 2nd, 1937. A tragic end to a round-the-world flight. But now a KCBS News team is writing the final chapter, a discovery that she crash-landed on the island of Saipan, was taken prisoner by the Japanese, and apparently was executed. Here now is our reporter who has just returned from Saipan, who interviewed eyewitnesses to the crash, who saw Amelia Earhart taken to jail. He personally dived into the waters of Tanapac Harbor to retrieve pieces of the wrecked plane. Here is Fred Gerner.
2: The story begins with a little girl, a native of Saipan, taking lunch to her brother-in-law, working at the Japanese naval base. As she approached the shore, an exciting and unusual scene unfolded. A silver two-engine plane flew low over the water, its engine sputtering and missing. It was not a Japanese plane she knew, and then it disappeared, hidden behind a cliff. She hurried on, reached the naval base, and there, at the beach a white American lady pilot and a man. The little girl never saw them again. Years later, the girl, now Mrs. Josephine Akiyama of San Mateo, California, told her story to a newspaper man, Lynn Day of the San Mateo Times, and to KCBS News. Here is Mrs. Akiyama. In 1927,
5: um, I took a lunch to uh, my, brother, my brother-in-law, uh, uh, Jose Matsumoto and uh, on the way to uh, give him his lunch I saw a two-motor engine plane it's a uh, uh, it uh, sounds seems to me it's a uh, kind of a um,
3: uh, it was a
2: silvery
5: color, huh? yes, yeah, silvery uh-huh. color and um, when I get there in that uh, place in Tanapac Harbor I saw a crowd of people uh, uh, watching the uh, uh, they was in the crowd so I just wondered what happened I I stood there be- behind the tree and I watched the uh, people too so uh, I saw an American lady dressed like a man and, uh, and with her companion and the uh, Japanese are so excited too and then after that they uh, took them to, uh, to the uh, car it's a black sedan and I think they take take them to uh, to the custody
2: uh where would they have taken them Josephine? Um, they
5: take they take him to the Garotan city uh um, it was uh, um, we have a two uh, they have a two places the one is uh, in Garapan, one is in uh, Punta Mucho that we call and uh it's a mil- military, uh, we call in Japanese, uh, Kempeitai. Mm-hmm. And they took them over there.
2: The main headquarters then, uh, for the Japanese military police, uh, was in the city of Garapan, but their barracks were located at what you refer to as uh, Punta Mucho.
5: Punta Mucho is uh, very close to, uh, Garapan city, next ah. to Garapan.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, then it would be between Garapan and, uh, Tanapak Harbor. Yes. I see
5: between
2: now oh. what about the plane had uh, did it land in the water by the beach or what
5: yes it's uh, it, uh, the plane is lined by the beach I when I get there I saw the plane too and the, uh, these two uh, uh, people uh, American lady uh, and, uh, and her companion
2: is that uh, the first time that you had ever seen yes, a white the person time
5: I saw American lady uh-huh. uh, I never saw American lady before would
2: but, you describe her once again?
5: Uh, she was, her, she has a, a short hair like a boy, a man, and she was dressed like a man. She wearing, uh, uh jacket like, and he, she was wearing, uh, slacks.
2: And people said that she was, uh, the American lady pilot. Yes,
5: uh, the people, Japanese people passing by when I, uh, stood by the tree, i heard them uh, saying the uh the lady is a, a pilot american lady and the other one is a, a navigator of her and uh I did you
2: hear what happened to them after
3: the japanese took them to their prison
5: yes following week uh well i should say it's a two or three weeks later that's what i remember one night we was playing at uh uh by the uh, house in the in the garrison city and one sailor passing by and stopped and uh, he, he uh, talked to us because uh... we know him so uh... They, uh we have a uh, talk and uh... because uh, uh... we know about it and we talked to him about it too and he, he mentioned that um, uh... They are, uh, uh, the lady is a uh, pilot, and the man is a uh, navigator, and they, they've been shot. They, uh, they execute them.
2: It was a fascinating story, and one which required further examination. Mrs. Akiyama's husband, also a native of Saipan, suggested we fly to the tiny island to investigate. With Navy permission, we did. And there began a fascinating three weeks of detective work akiyama questioned the natives and I questioned him here's how it went about what time in his life did the woman come can he find, remember any events in his life when was uh, when did this woman land here uh, in regard to the rest of his life when was he married uh, when was when were his children born
6: Antonio is a country but he still insists that uh, this was happening before the war, long before the war. He still insists because uh, when first uh, Japanese uh, ship bringing, you know, ammunition like that. Well, it couldn't have been long before the war because 1937 was only four years before
2: the war. Ask him if he heard what happened to the American woman the pilot.
7: What did
6: they do to her, and how did they do it, if mean, they did anything? Afar Matsuganian,
7: this person who? Didn't he call him Matsuganian?
6: That's what he from his friend, he said, they might send him to other place. He didn't know where, where, when. He didn't, he did, never heard what happened to her, whether no. she was executed, or what they did with her? Afar Tintua uh, Matsuganian, he he say, uh, he didn't know what happened to her because that time he cannot see and uh, he cannot trace. You know. So I want to ask again, how come the Japanese told you, told you about that?
2: Before I tell you the startling answers, let's recall the flight of Amelia Earhart and her own startling
7: background. <laughs>
2: Only 2,000 miles completed in 40 days, 30 stops, only two more to go, Howland, then Honolulu. The thin, almost fragile girl shook her head. She was tired, very tired. This kind of flying really took it out of you. Left behind 19 countries, five continents, the equator crossed three times, with a fourth to come. She had bucked wind, rain, thunderstorms, and monsoons. The 100-odd dials, gauges, and gadgets in the cockpit of the Electra had demanded her constant attention. And now the most dangerous leg of the -the around-the-world flight lay ahead, 2,556 miles to Howland Island, a two-mile-long, three-quarter-of-a-mile-wide target in a vast 450,000 square miles of South Pacific Ocean. The time? A few minutes past 10 a.m., July second, 1937. The place? lay New Guinea. The five-ton Electra zooms down the 3,000-foot runway, breaking ground cleanly just short of the sheer cliff which falls away to the sea. Amelia Earhart and Frederick Noonan are airborne to eternity. One of the most puzzling enigmas in the history of aviation began that July morning in 1937 and has persisted through 23 years of rumor and conjecture. Amelia Earhart, courage with wings. A slender, tousled-haired woman who fought the elements and won a nation's heart. At last we have the answer to the final flight into yesterday. In reaching a solution to the disappearance in 1937 of Amelia Earhart Putnam and Frederick Noonan, it was necessary for us to make our way through a morass of conflicting rumors and suppositions. From the plethora of conjecture, KCBS has extracted only that which can be supported by personal testimony or extant documents. The following is fact. Amelia Earhart was born to fly, and she became one of America's greatest heroines. The story of her disappearance has a tendency to overshadow her accomplishments. Amelia was the first woman to fly the Atlantic Ocean, first as a passenger and then as a solo pilot. She was the first human being, man or woman, to fly solo from Hawaii to the mainland of the United States, landing at Bay Farm Island, Oakland Airport, January 12, 1935. She was first to fly solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City, from Mexico City to Newark, New Jersey. Amelia Earhart held dozens of speed and altitude records in addition to her other accomplishments. Knowing this, it's easy to understand how she came to her greatest challenge, the flight around the world. In 1935, the Purdue University Research Foundation set up the Amelia Earhart Fund for the purchase of a plane to be used experimentally as Amelia saw fit. Enough money for a plane came into the fund by early 1936. Amelia chose the latest model off the line at Lockheed Aircraft, the new twin-engined Electra transport designed for ten persons. Amelia was sold on Lockheed. She had set most of her records in their single-engine Vega model. Extensive planning for the globe-circling endeavor began almost immediately. George Putnam, Amelia's publisher husband, accepted the difficult task of cutting through the maze of international red tape and assembling the necessary portfolio of passports, medical records, and credentials. Putnam also made arrangements for adequate stores of fuel and spare parts at stopping places along the projected route. During the latter half of 1936, Amelia thoroughly tested the new low-winged monoplane with its 55-foot wingspan. It was like a dream come true to Amelia. The passenger seats were removed from the fuselage. Two large fuel tanks were bolted in their places, boosting the plane's distance range to 4,000 miles. It's a fine ship, Amelia said, after a half-dozen shakedown flights. And it was an excellent aircraft, with only one serious drawback. The communications equipment was primitive at best for intercom between pilot and navigator a fishing pole was used notched at the end for passing cards back and forth 50 watts was the unhealthy strength of the radio a much more powerful system was needed for flying around the world but the funds were exhausted so amelia decided the 50 water would have to do the calendar turned into 1937 and preparations went ahead at a furious pace Clarence Williams of Los Angeles got together the maps and charts. Paul Mance resumed his familiar role as technical advisor. His help had been invaluable on the Hawaii-California flight in 1935. Mance was to be responsible for the mechanical readiness of the Electra. The itinerary was finally decided upon. Amelia would have plenty of assistance on the first leg to Honolulu. Mance would help her fly the Lockheed, and she would have the services of two qualified navigators, Captain Harry Manning and Frederick Noonan. Both had plenty of time in as maritime navigators and had logged plenty of hours in the air as well. Mance would leave the flight at Honolulu. Noonan would be dropped off at Howland Island. Manning would stay on to Brisbane, Australia. Amelia would then complete the trip around the world flying solo. It was a rainy day, March 17, 1937, at Oakland Airport. Amelia, Mance, Manning, and Noonan climbed into the Electra a little after three in the afternoon. The twin WASP engines growled powerfully, beautifully in time. Slowly, the Lockheed taxied down to the end of the field. To tell you about that flight to Hawaii, here is the voice of one of the men who made the trip, Paul Mance, now the proprietor of a flying service in Southern California. How about that flight, Paul? Did it go smoothly?
3: Yes, it did. Uh, we waited uh, two or three days at, uh, at Oakland, waiting for the weather to be favorable. And we finally got a satisfactory weather report, and I took the airplane off checking her out on heavy load takeoffs. And uh, we flew to uh, Honolulu. She did most of the time in the air. a very fine person. She didn't want, said that anybody else did any flying on a trip around the world. So I guess she flew about 45 minutes out of every hour. And then uh, I switched back to the pilot's uh, seat to land the airplane when we got there.
2: Speaking of landing, was there some discussion about making the landfall at Hawaii?
3: Yes, it was. We were above the overcast and I've always had uh, quite a fear for flying into what we call a stuffed cloud. And uh, so I told the navigators i gave give them about five more minutes for a, uh, for a fix. And uh, so um, they said we'd, uh, we'd like more time. And I said, well, okay then, and I'll give you three minutes for a fix. And I just ducked down and went through the overcast and instantly let down. I didn't want to uh, be too close to those mountains when they came into Hawaii, so. I noticed a couple of uh, fishing boats going out when I uh, uh, came through, and I, from the size of them, I knew we were pretty close to land. Mm-hmm. The navigator did a tremendous job because I, I, I uh, kept the same course and brought us right between um, the two islands, and then I made the right turn and came into Honolulu to land.
2: Well, after you landed at Wheeler Field, uh, you shifted the plane to Luke Field, didn't you? That's why right. did Why
3: did you do that? For the longer runway for her to make the heavy load takeoff.
2: Well, what happened to Amelia when she tried to t- take off the next day?
3: Well, the takeoff uh, wasn't quite the next day after several days of checking the airplane. Why, she, uh, in the takeoff, she, uh, the airplane got away from her. Uh, the landing gear collapsed and, uh, washed it, washed the airplane out as far as the landing gear and, and the bottom of the airplane. Of course, she did not catch fire, so, uh, I sent the airplane back on her freighter to the Lockheed factory and had it rebuilt, and that's when I replaced the engines. And that's the reason the generator is a mystery to me until I can find out. I have the number of the generators on the airplane at that time, it was number 109. And it was uh, the brand, was a Bendix Eclipse generator. The one that we have here it could have been the new one that was put on the airplane. It's a heavy duty generator, as you mentioned, Which is a while 50 ago. rather
2: than 25 amperes. Yeah, right? the a 50 amperes mm-hmm.
3: instead of 25. And also, the wind driven generator was the same. Well, what did you do with the Electra then, Paul, after the crash? We, we uh, took it back to Lockheed Factory and had it completely rebuilt. And then Amelia started out alone with her navigator, I should say, Noonan and uh, Amelia, and started going from west to east instead of from uh, east to west, as we did, to starting the flight. She went from here to the uh, uh, United States to Miami and then from there on across the Atlantic and uh, on. And she, was, she only had two more landings to make and her flight would be completed. She had to land it she left LA, she had one land to make it Holland, Next would have been Honolulu. The next would have been, been here in San Francisco. Oakland Bay Farm Island yes, Airport. That's right. Determined not to give
2: up her flight around the world despite the disastrous Luke Field crackup, Amelia Earhart immediately began preparations for what was to be her final flight. The crackup at Honolulu meant a major change of plans in the proposed around the world flight. Repairs to the Electra couldn't be completed before early May. A few weeks for testing would leave Amelia with a late May departure date, and flying east to west was no longer feasible. The flight would have to go the other way to take advantage of prevailing winds, and they'd have to hurry at that to get through the Pacific before the typhoon season really got underway. The electro repairs were not completed until May 19th. The long delay necessitated changes other than direction of flight. Navigator Captain Harry Manning had to abandon the project and return to the command of his ship. Amelia asked Frederick Noonan to assume full navigational responsibility for the entire trip, and Fred agreed. It should be mentioned here that a number of qualified persons doubted the high-speed celestial navigational ability of Fred Noonan, despite his years of experience laying out South Pacific routes for the Pan American Airways. These people persuaded Amelia to take Noonan a couple of hundred miles off the California coast, fly him around in circles until he was thoroughly disoriented, then ask him to navigate her back to Los Angeles. Noonan got her back to the coast all right, but in the vicinity of San Luis Obispo, 200 or so miles north of Los Angeles, a pretty sizable error in only a few few hours of flying. Nevertheless, Amelia seemed satisfied. She had tremendous confidence in her own ability. She felt she could correct any errors that Fred Noonan might make. A few minutes before 6 a.m., the morning of June 1st, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Frederick Noonan took off from Miami, Florida, determined to circle the Earth at the equator, flying west to east. Twenty days later, July 2nd, 1937, after successfully reaching Ley, New Guinea, Amelia and Fred took off for Howland Island. The hours crept by slowly. Twenty hours out from Ley, New Guinea, Amelia Earhart and Frederick Noonan flying their twin-engine Lockheed were lost. 2,556 miles from Ley to Howland Island, the most difficult leg of their around-the-world journey, which had begun May 20th from Miami. The Coast Guard ship Itasca stood by Howland Island, trying to guide the mission plane to safety. It was tense in the radio room. At 8 a.m., the Itasca sent out a long series of A's on 7,500 kilocycles. In response to the Itasca's message, Amelia finally broke in. We are receiving your signals, but are unable to get a minimum for a bearing. Please take a bearing on us and answer with voice on 3105. The Itasca could not get a bearing. The transmission was static-filled and intermittent. Forty-five minutes went by. The radio room of the Itasca was charged with excitement and fear. Where were they? They should have arrived over Howland long before this time. Why couldn't Amelia and Noonan send a consistent signal if they were within a few hundred miles of the island? At 8.45 a.m., the Itasca radio operator tried again. Answer on 3105 kilocycles with phone. How are signals coming in? Go ahead. The voice of Amelia Earhart broke in, excited, almost frenzied. For a few seconds, the voice was strong and clear. We are in a line of position 157337. We'll repeat this message on 6210 kilocycles. Wait, listening on 6210 kilocycles. We are running north and south. Those were the final words ever heard from Amelia Earhart. We are running north and south. Frantically, throughout the day, the radio room aboard the Itasca tried to reestablish contact. It was useless. Amelia Earhart and Frederick Noonan had disappeared into the vast Pacific and have remained missing for the last 23 years. Until now, in 1960, we finally have the answer to the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Why has this story remained untold for so many years? The island was under Japanese control, the island of Saipan. Josephine Akiyama heard later the Americans had been executed for spying, while the Japanese had been illegally fortifying the island and others throughout the South Pacific. They did not hesitate to exterminate anyone they suspected might reveal the extent of their fortifications. The United States attacked Saipan in 1944. The island was hideously torn apart. The Japanese had told the natives the Americans would torture and maim them if they should gain control of the island. Many of the native Chamorros committed mass suicide when the Americans finally did arrive. The atmosphere was and still is one of fear. Mrs. Akiyama had never heard the name Amelia Earhart until after the war. And then she, personally, would have had absolutely nothing to gain in relating the scene she had witnessed in 1937 on that July day. Could Amelia have flown so far off course? Saipan is almost due north from her takeoff point of Ley, New Guinea. Howland Island lies east and somewhat north, 40 miles north of the equator. Paul Mance thinks this is possible and even probable. Who is Paul Mance, one of America's most famed flyers, and the man who plotted many of the Amelia Earhart records and expeditional flights? Paul Mance, you have just arrived here in San Francisco and you've just seen the generator that we've brought back from Tanapak Harbor in the island of Saipan. Uh, What is your estimation of this? Did it come from Amelia Earhart's plane?
3: I cannot say that as yet... uh... It's very fortunate the numbers are clear on it, and it's the size of the generator that uh, I purchased. I have here before me a Lockheed Aircraft Corporation interdepartment communication that is addressed to the production office and so forth for Electra 1055 Earhart, sales department order number 14. On it it says, order wind-driven, gener- uh, wind-driven ampere generator with propeller. This will also be picked up and installed by Mr. Mance. And here I have... a. a a notation of the engines that were taken from her plane that uh, after they had the accident in Honolulu and we replaced the engines with new engines. I have the number of that generator, but that generator was replaced with another one. So I have to run down two generators to find out if this is the one or not. Was this the type generator
2: she would have been using? Oh, yes,
3: very definitely.
2: Well, how about placing it as far as years are concerned? This is an early
3: type generator. It's an early isn't type there? generator, very definitely.
2: Now, the Navy maintenance experts indicated to me that uh, this is what they believe to be a lease Neville generator. Uh, it had been used, uh, to some extent, on Pan-American clippers in the early days. And uh, th- is this a heavy-duty type generator?
3: Yes, it is. Now, That's what, what uh, was originally
2: aer- in, installed in her aircraft?
3: The one that came with the airplane originally was not a heavy-duty generator. I replaced it with a heavy-duty generator, and the wind-driven generator was also a heavy-duty generator. You asked me a moment ago about this inspection plate. That also has possibilities in as much that there are no flush rivets. We did not use flush riveting that long ago. And uh, you go ahead and ask me some questions. Uh, Fred. I'll do the best I can to answer them. Well, now, uh,
2: you're speaking of this as an inspection plate. Would this come from the wing of the aircraft?
3: Yes, it would.
2: Was this the kind of metal that was used in her aircraft? Definitely. And as you mentioned, the uh, rivets are not flush rivets. Now they use flush rivets. That is correct, yes. Uh, Again, the naval maintenance experts told me that this is definitely pre-World War II aircraft. It's of American construction. And this particular part definitely could have come from the Lockheed.
3: It could have come from the Lockheed, yes. I will not identify it until I have a chance to study a little bit more, but it definitely could have come from the Lockheed. The answer is yes.
2: Well, we don't know of any other American plane that could have gone down in Tanapak Harbor on the island of Saipan prior to the war.
3: Well, that's very definite.
1: Uh, Paul, how do you figure that she might have become so far off course as to get up to Saipan?
3: Well, that uh, kind of is a little complicated. Uh, Jim Thompson, my chief pilot, is sitting right here with me. Uh, He's quite... He's an ex-naval aviator and navigator. And... uh, quite active in flying with me all the time, and uh, Jim computed the thing to see whether or not she could have gone directly to Saipan and then to Holland with the amount of fuel that, uh, that uh, we, I had in the airplane. Uh, I had 1,200 gallons of gas. She definitely could have. That's number one. Number two, with the general circulation of the winds. she very definitely could have gone ahead and gone towards Holland Island. Got a fix enough to be satisfied that they were having strong headwinds and then turned around and took advantage of the reverse tailwinds and made sap pan. Uh, Jim, I'd like to have you kind of explain that a little bit, if you will. Well, of course, it's uh, very possible that uh, due to
7: mechanical things and being that there was quite well known that there was both an overcast and an undercast, and uh, undoubtedly it would have to be flying in it for some time, which. Uh, coupled with the fact that the typhoon that uh, was established in the area could have blown them completely out of, out of their flight path or their intended flight path.
2: Well, Jim, we definitely know that they were flying in overcast and undercast from her radio transmissions.
7: That's right. That was the one uh, the transmission that got through back to Lay. She reported in the overcast and had been in and out of clouds constantly.
2: Jim, does the fact that uh, uh, she didn't report in regularly as she was scheduled to do so, uh, does this mean anything to you as a pilot?
7: Well, uh... Yes, I imagine uh, uh, we could say best that uh, probably, possibly, she was too busy trying to keep the airplane going straight.
2: Or is there a possibility that she was simply so far off course that they couldn't have received her on the radio and those transmissions they did receive at the Coast Guard Cutter-Itasca were simply a matter of skip?
7: Well,
3: that's what we theorize, yes. Yes, uh, a matter of skip is very good. Uh, Many a times you'll listen to a particularly short wave or long distance broadcast, and uh, you hear it, that fades out absolutely entirely. also don't come in with such volume. What is it, a haverside layer that affects that? Uh, heavy side layer. Heavy side layer yeah. <laughs> uh, incidentally, there's a, uh, another unit you have here that interests me, and that is definitely a uh, part of a pump that's heavy, heavily covered with coral and uh, rusted badly. Uh, I had a pump in that same size or that identical size. Again, I'd have to identify it. To, uh, to transfer fuel from these various tanks. Would Have this it,
2: catch on here be to open this particular yes, line? Yes, it would be. be uh-huh. a valve.
3: And, uh, and behind it, what did you say, Jim? Uh, Paul, this is an interesting piece here.
7: This is a, evidently a duct, you know, like is on the, the yes. outside of the manifold on the R 30 40 engine. Exactly. And I think that if we can get the contour, well, we probably can check this
3: very closely as being the type that is on the electric. I certainly would like to have these parts and take them down to my shop and uh, really go into it because uh, the possibilities are, I cannot positively uh, positively identify anything, but they certainly are definitely in line with what I put on the airplane for her. Paul, an interesting thing
2: is when I brought these parts up from the bottom of Tanapak Harbor, is that uh, there was still a light coat of aluminum on them and it would turn black in my hands as, the, as it hit the air. It would come right off on the, so that of the, the hands completely
3: of, with black. That would be, uh, Jim, the
7: aluminum was coated right. with... Uh, well, you uh, it uh, was uh, dissolving, but when the oxygen got to it... When the oxygen hit it,
2: it would turn black and come right off mm-hmm. in the hands. Jim, the last radio transmission of Amelia Earhart came at 8.45 a.m. at Howland Island. And the final conversation was... We are 157-337, running north and south. Now, just specifically, what does this mean? Did she know where she was?
7: Well, evidently she thought she did, but of course saying where she was is one thing, and being where you think you are is another. But being as it's, it's actually a reciprocal, the north, uh, uh, west on 337 and southeast on 157, so it was just a fixed line. And, of course, that could be anywhere between Lai and Howland or Lai and Saipan or anywhere. And if she was running north, you see, these are the things that really uh, thicken the plot, as it were, because if she was running north, it would be on a dead heading for Saipan. In
3: other words, it was just a sun
7: line.
2: In other words, she could have been anywhere along, say, 2,000 miles of that sun line. That's right. Very anywhere definitely. north and south. Very definitely. It. Absolutely. And again, this indicates to me, uh, as the last transmission, this is not the kind of position that you radio in. It's one that perhaps Noonan might have taken the minute he could get a sun reading, and that's the best he could give her as right. to position.
7: Well, of course, it would give you a point that uh, if uh, they had thought they were in the vicinity of their destination, why well, they would be running back and forth on this line and uh, possibly the DF facilities, why they might be able to pick them up. Of course, this
2: wasn't the sun line at that hour in the morning for Howland Island. It wasn't, the, uh, wasn't it for, for Saipan, either. That's it lay right. somewhere in between. That's right. But again, at 8.45 in the morning and 6.45 in the morning, that would have been Saipan time. That would still have left her uh, a couple of three hours of gasoline. And if she had been, uh, say, 500 or 600 miles away from Saipan, still going north on that same course, it would have brought her there at
1: almost exactly the time all 12 of these eyewitnesses indicate she did crash land there. Well, it
7: certainly is a very sound theory.
1: We pause now for 30 seconds for station identification. The Amelia Earhart program is coming to you from KCBS, AMFM San Francisco and is being brought to you by the Shell Oil Company. The story of Amelia Earhart's disappearance was a detective story that ranged thousands of miles into the Pacific. The gathering of the evidence itself could be the basis for a bestseller. To tell that, here again is Fred Gurner.
2: The decision had to be made. The story of Mrs. Josephine Blanco Akiyama was completely believable. Dave McElhattan of KCBS in San Francisco, and I had been presenting background regarding the Amelia Earhart disappearance on Dave's afternoon program. We decided the big brass would think the information we had uncovered to date might warrant an expedition to the island of Saipan to see if the story could be corroborated. Cy Whitelaw, our station sales head, was in charge, station manager Maury Webster being in New York for a CBS conference. I immediately saw the potential of the story and the necessity of going directly to the island for supporting evidence. He contacted Mr. Webster in the east, and the heads of the network conferred. Yes, was the immediate answer. Amelia Earhart belonged to the American people. If her disappearance could be solved, the CBS network would provide the opportunity. I was ordered to depart immediately. I took Mr. Maximo Akiyama with me to interpret. His father had been loved by the people of Saipan, where he was a lawyer before World War II. Max's father was killed in the American invasion in 1944. Two weeks ago, last Tuesday, June 14th, we left for Saipan. I fairly staggered aboard the plane loaded down with tape recorders and camera equipment. Lieutenant Commander George York met us at Guam and confirmed that we had Navy clearance to enter the island of Saipan. Saipan is a United Nations trust area. The United States has the trust. Navy transportation was provided. Though it is not as picturesquely rugged as some of the high islands of Polynesia, nor as majestic as Ponape and the Carolines, the island of Saipan and the Marianas group of Micronesia has a certain massive character of its own. Viewed from an approaching plain, Saipan appears as a handsome tropical island. Rising from its center are the forest-top slopes of Mount Topachau. The western shore is bordered by a very thin strip of coral beach. The east shore is rocky and forbidding. The spume and spindrift rise from the crashing waves and float upward. On landing on Saipan, however, we were presented with a different picture. Here is no Pacific island with abundance. Saipan, 15 years after the war, is a strange and incongruous mixture of natural beauty and the ugly abandoned remains of war. In the few years since the invasion of the island by American forces in World War II, the ancient ruined stone pillars that formed the foundations of prehistoric Chamorro houses have been joined by more recent architectural relics. The main town of Garapan, its pre-war population was more than 13,000, is no more. The total population of the entire island today is only about 6,400. Chalancanoa is the main village. Max and I made our headquarters there. Saipan, approximately 12 and a half miles long and a little more than five and a half miles wide, has a land area of only 46 square miles. Navy commanders Bridwell and Hippie met us at the plane and did their best to assist us during the entirety of the investigation. It would not have been possible but for their good offices. The Navy is doing a yeoman job on the island trying to build the strength of the native economy and care for their medical necessities. Commander Bridwell suggested I stay at the Navy bachelor officer's headquarters. I declined his kind offer, feeling it was important for us to live in the village with the people and gain their confidence. The first few days on the island, Max Akiyama proceeded to become reacquainted with old friends while I set about enlisting the aid of the fathers of the church. The island population is almost 100% Catholic. I found Monsignor O.L. Calvo and Fathers Arnold Bendowski and Sylvan Conover glad to cooperate and indeed very interested in the project. They had themselves heard some vague rumors over the years about the white woman pilot and her male companion who had landed so long ago. They agreed to help me with interpretation and to ask questions on their own as they toured about the island. We were ready to begin. During the next two weeks, Max and I and the fathers interviewed more than 300 persons and ran down every lead that presented itself. Our tenacity began to show results. Gradually, the story began to take shape. Little bits of the puzzle fell into place. Here is some of the testimony we got with our tape recorders. Four of us went to work. We went to the harbor to unload food from the ships. And during that time, one of our group went to the restroom. It was near a place where they kept the lady. I saw her face peering out of the small window. He said he was born in Guam and had lived there a long time and could tell an American lady. He called me and said, I bet you the lady I just saw is an American lady. He called everybody in the work group
0: to see the lady.
2: The woman I saw had light brown hair. It was cut like a man's. I am positive I saw the lady with my own two eyes. I can be sure she was an American because the other boy was from Guam and knew.
0: In those days, I didn't even know
2: the skin color of American people.
0: And
2: from Jesus, J. Boya. I remember well one American pilot, a lady.
7: Her face, arms,
2: and posture all looked American. I didn't see her real close, but she was wearing a bandana. And I saw her hair was cut real short like a
0: man's.
6: To my
2: knowledge, the Japanese kept her in custody. From Gregorio Camacho, I heard from the Japanese officers about the American lady flyer. I remember it was before the war and maybe around 1937. After landing on island, they took both to the Japanese military area.
0: The Japanese were very surprised to see a lady flyer
2: because at that time it would never happen
0: that a lady would
2: fly. I remember the lady and the man. I am very sure I was a grown man at the time. When the American plane came... I thought maybe air raid. I was dealing with high officials on the island, and I had become active in civil defense at times, My job was to take care of damage from fire and to take people to cave in case of war. I didn't exactly see the man and the woman, but I heard from the Japanese official about one woman flyer and a man. They landed at a place then called top of the Porto Corico,
0: now called Tanapat. Why I know of this incident?
2: I used to know a very high-ranking Japanese officer. I studied Japanese in Japan and understood the language well. I dealt with high officials on the island and knew what they were saying in Japanese. The name of the lady I heard use. This is the name the Japanese officer said. Erharto. I may add that it is customary to add an O to American names. For instance, while I was on the island, I was referred to as Fretto.
0: At sa pagunalugat, imananan
6: Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, exactamente. Paip sa pagdating mananan Puerto Rico from
2: Rios Arcamacho, I was working at Tanapac Harbor I saw the plane It was heading across the island And here he indicated A northeasterly to southwesterly direction It crashed in Tanapak area I saw a Navy launch bring them to the beach I saw the lady pilot and the man She was dressed like a man And her hair was short it was brown. Afterwards, they kept her in Tenefac. One day, I passed a building, and the Japanese guard pointed to it and said, Inside, we are keeping the American lady flyer.
0: I saw them force the
2: man into a sedan at the base.
0: Altis como el japonés, militarismo, Gof
2: The testimony goes on and on. We have two and a half hours on tape. Monsignor and the fathers concurred. These people were telling the truth. We had overcome their fear of being questioned and they contributed what small knowledge each had. The result was big. Testimony proved that the plane had landed in Tanapak Harbor on the northwest side of the island between Menegaha Island and Point Flores. The plane had come over the island from the northeast. A Japanese lunch had gone out into the harbor and picked up Amelia and Noonan and brought them to the shore. They were detained on the beach for a few minutes while a car was being summoned. Then they were taken in this black closed car into the city of Garapan and to the second floor of the Japanese military police headquarters. There, a Chamorro man by the name of Gregorio Sablan was summoned to interpret. He was one of the few persons on the island who spoke English with any facility. After a lengthy interrogation period, Amelia and Fred were taken to Garapan prison and placed in one of its foul cells. A few hours later, they were transferred to a more secret prison inside Punto Mucho, which contained the Japanese military police barracks and a detention stockade. Here, the trail ends. Most of the natives indicate that the White Flyers never left the area, that they were executed and buried within the grounds. We could find no one who could point to the grave. The area has long since returned to jungle. I knew now I had irrefutable testimony. But the thought kept haunting me. Could any of that plane still exist on the floor of the lagoon? It seemed inconceivable after 23 years that anything could still remain. But I decided we had come 6,000 miles and I would never be satisfied unless I took a look. I rented a boat and began to skin dive the harbor in the vicinity which the eyewitnesses indicated the plane had landed. I floated the top of the water using a face mask until I would come on something likely and then dive down for a close look. The water is about 25 feet deep in that area. On my third dive, a gray shark about my size passed not more than 10 feet away and I decided that I'd better scour the island for some natives to do the diving job. Max located two native divers, Gregorio Mugufnia and Antonio Titano, and again, good fortune smiled. The divers knew of the wreck of the two-engine plane that had been there long since before the war. The location was within 100 yards of where I had made my last dive. The divers assured me that sharks in the lagoon Would not bother you if you did not tie fish that you'd caught around your waist. The gray one's not bad, they said. Those lemon sharks outside the reef, watch out. The lure of the sunken plane proved too much. I decided to continue diving, too. The plane went down on rock, and parts were growing right in the coral. It was a real rustling job to pull anything loose. Altogether, we brought about 500 pounds of rusting, rotting aircraft to the surface. I had gone as far as I could in the search. The fathers assured me that they would continue to try to locate the burial place of Amelia and Frederick. So, Max and I headed back to the States just two weeks after the original departure. At Guam, Navy aviation experts photographed the plane parts and investigated them thoroughly. Results? They were pre-World War II from an American plane of the model Amelia Earhart flew. I had the strangest feeling flying back on the Pan American Clipper. Amelia Earhart's plane was completing the -the around-the-world flight. At least a part of it was. Only one trouble. Amelia and Fred could not make the trip. And the plane itself was 23 years overdue. Amelia Earhart and Frederick Noonan lost their lives because of the stupidity of a few short-sighted, conquest-minded men. I found some solace in the thought that at least Amelia had beaten her greatest enemies, the Elements. Amelia's voice is preserved on recordings. Here's what she said before she took off on the final flight around the world.
5: The pilot winging his way above the earth at 200 miles an hour talks by radio telephone to ground stations or to other planes in the air. He sits behind engines, the reliability of which is all but unbelievable.
2: Amelia Earhart could not only fly, she could write. She tried her hand at poetry one time. The result? An appropriate piece called Courage. Courage is the price that life exacts for granting peace. The soul that knows it not knows no release from little things, knows not the livid loneliness of fear, nor mountain heights where bitter joy can hear the sound of wings. How can life grant us boon of living? compensate for dull gray ugliness and pregnant hate unless we dare the soul's dominion. Each time we make a choice, we pay with courage to behold the resistless day and count it fair.
3: to follow the news vault from kcbs radio on social media on facebook we're at news vault podcast on twitter find us at news vault sf on instagram we're at news vault until our next episode you are leaving the news vault from kcbs radio